Hi everyone! Welcome to this series of interviews done by Arkin Digital Health. I'm Nadav Shimoni. I'm leading digital health investments for Arkin. In this series of interviews, we're going to bring leaders and seasoned executives coming from different parts of the U.S. healthcare system, hopefully to allow you, entrepreneurs, investors, and anyone trying to tap into the U.S. healthcare system to gain some insights, some value, some understanding how to do that better. In this episode, we're going to have Dr. David Shulkin with us. Dr. Shulkin is the ninth U.S. Secretary for Veteran Affairs under the Obama and Trump administration. He comes from a diverse background, serving as a board member, as a consultant, and as an advisor to different companies. In this episode, we're going to try to understand from Dr. Shulkin how to better interact with the U.S. government and how to interact with different provider organizations. Let's get started. Hello, Dr. David Shulkin. How are you? I'm doing great, Nadav. It is uh, a great pleasure having you with us. We are very, very excited towards this episode and looking forward to hear all your beautiful and very important insights about the U.S. industry. Great. Looking forward to it as well. Terrific. Uh, I thought it might be a good opportunity to start by learning a bit about your journey. Obviously, you passed so many meaningful places throughout your, your career, but I was wondering if you can share perhaps a place or two who were special or had uh, you know particular meaning for you. Well, what I've done throughout my career is, is a number of different things. About every five years, I tried to reinvent myself and take on a new challenge. And so... I've done so many different things. I started as a physician. I have run healthcare systems. I've run and started accountable care organizations and physician groups. I've done a couple of startups in my career. I've worked in different parts of the healthcare sector, including government most recently. So when you do different things every five years, you get lots of different experiences and you get to be adaptable to different environments. Terrific. So actually, I wanted to start perhaps with the government angle. I mean, not so many people have the opportunity to see how things are kind of like working from the inside. So perhaps uh, you can share some thoughts about, you know, working with the government. What is, I mean, when an entrepreneur or a company think about working with uh, the VA, for example, or a CMS, what sort of, of consideration should one have in mind? Well, as you have mentioned, I have had the chance to lead uh, the Department of Veteran Affairs, which is the second largest government agency in the United States government. And even after doing it, as long as I have uh, under two different presidents, I'm not sure I fully understand how to work with the government at times. It is a big place. It is full of very peculiar rules for how you purchase products. And what I say to young companies who want to try to go and to offer their services and products, that this is not an environment that they should do on their own. Now, every now and then you have a unicorn where you hear a story where the government finds a small company and it's able to get in and, and it's got a great success story. So it can happen, but it certainly is not the norm. It is a, a place that you need to have somebody who can shepherd you with the right type of strategies, the right type of operational issues 
to make sure that you don't make a mistake because in government, if you do something that doesn't follow the exact way of doing it, they're not likely to tell you that. They're just likely to say, I'm sorry, it, it's not a fit for us. Now, that's that's very, very important. I, I guess perhaps as a follow-up question, what do you think perhaps uh, the biggest or two biggest differences between you know working with the government and working with a non-governmental health plan, BUCAS, for example? Well, I do think that government makes decisions differently than private businesses. They're not as focused specifically on return to investment, but rather on the fit with what they're trying to get done and with the mission of their government agency. It is often more challenging for a small company to get into government, but once a company gets into a government contract, if it's performing well, it also is more stable. What a private sector company like Abuka may do is it may start with a company and learn what it likes about it and then develop its own strategy. That is not likely to happen in government. Government isn't looking to develop and replace products or services. They're looking for what works for them. And if something's working, that tends to be a very long-term, stable relationship. Very sticky. So essentially, yes, can be a happy bottle, but uh, once you're there, perhaps you will be there for a long time. Right. And there are, there are shortcuts in working to get into government, in finding the right contract vehicles. That means that contracts that already exist that you can add on to rather than to start on your own. And, you know, knowing how to look for when government is seeking proposals and knowing what those characteristics are the government is looking for so that you can move quicker in the process, particularly in the Department of Veteran Affairs. That often means knowing how to work with a service disabled veteran owned small business because VA has a legislative requirement to offer procurements to veteran-owned organizations if that company can provide a service. So these are very unique circumstances that a company needs to understand how to maneuver, how to, how to execute, how to be competitive in a government procurement process. So essentially, know what you know and know that you don't know a lot and work with someone to help you. I think that's... Sure. Uh, that's a great advice for anyone. You have such a tremendous work experience that you've been part of, of hospitals and health systems, both as a, as a chief medical officer and a, and, a, and a chief executive officer, and then with the government uh, and then the private sector. Think about working with providers as a whole, with health systems. Are there any ideas about how to gear up your go-to-market? What are the right players to start? I think that when you're a young company or a company that's coming from outside the U.S., you have to look at a series of things to see whether a good partner it meets your characteristics for what a good partner is and the other way around, that that partner is looking for what you have. So. In healthcare, of course, timing is everything, and you have to find 
the right type of health system in this case that is looking for what you're providing at the right time. And if you have a really good product, but it happens to be the wrong time for that health system, it's going to be very hard to get them to want to move forward with a relationship with you. The second thing is, is that you have to look at the leadership of that health system. In healthcare in general, but particularly in the U.S., there is a lot of market inertia. If a system is doing okay, many leaders are fine, sort of not rocking the boat. So particularly if you're developing a product or a service that is new or innovative, you have to find the right type of leadership at that organization that's willing to take the risk or unsatisfied with the status quo and wants to really make improvements. You also have to find a customer that's willing to work with a foreign company, with an Israeli company. You know, many Israeli companies just don't have strong brands or economies of scale. There's often a joke among hospital CEOs that that when you're looking for an accountant, nobody's going to blame you if you pick one of the big top four accounting firms because it's a safe bet. But when you go with a younger company or, or one that people haven't heard of, there's a risk in it. So you have to have a customer that feels comfortable with that. And the Israeli companies need to understand their customers. They need to know the nuances of the American market of the regulatory environment, of the legal environment, what American consumers are looking for. So when you pick a partner, you really need to get all those characteristics of timing, of leadership, of comfort with working with an Israeli company and the Israeli company understanding their customer as well. If you can get all those lined up, I think that then that's a good partner for you. You know, there is a different version of this sentence, I guess. Nobody got fired by working with IBM for IT people exactly. and, and, and right. so on, uh, right. which, I guess, which I guess begs uh, a follow-up right. question. Assume someone got in and, and found yeah. his or her champion. You're starting to work on your pilot and everything is, is really nice and going very well. But then there is always the question of what next? Given that you found your first champion, your first site, how can you think about things like scale or not like death by pilot, which we hear a lot, uh, a lot, I guess? Yeah, I generally dislike the term pilot because it means we're not sure so we're gonna we're gonna test it so that what you really want to do when you enter the market, you want to look at that first customer. as it is essential that that be successful. And success means not only having a happy customer, but having them to want to expand it in their environment. And if you find the right first customer, they become your biggest champion and they tell their friends and they talk in the industry about what it is that you've done. You know, I know Israel is a very small market where people tend to know each other. But the U.S. healthcare market is the same way. There's a relatively small group of top-level decision makers, and we all know each other, and we all talk. And so if you can really find a great success with that first customer, and they happen to be 
wannabes, thought leaders, opinion leaders that other people listen to, they're going to take a lot of that burden of being able to help you get your next customer away from you. It just reminded me, thank you. I, I just heard this notion that just uh, hospital care in the US is more than a trillion dollars. And essentially, I guess 90% of that is accounted by 100 hospitals. So essentially 100 CEOs management are responsible for almost a trillion dollars in revenues. If you can tap into one of them, that might be helpful. Right. And um, I think that that's important to remember that in the way that that can help you with, with success of that first customer who then can talk about that to those other 99 people, you in the same way have the challenge that if you're not ready or you don't perform or execute in a good way, that can also backfire on you. Maybe that could serve us well as, as a segue to speak about Israeli companies in particular, in a way, uh, you know, switching gears. You have been working with a lot of Israeli companies, I guess, the most advanced, the most innovative. What have you learned about Israeli companies? Well, look, I think Israeli companies have so many advantages. They tend to be very innovative. They do focus on execution. They're very driven. They move quickly. I think all of those are, are incredible advantages. And what I find about Israeli companies is, is that in general, they're not afraid to tackle hard problems or to take on challenges. And, you know, let's face it, Israelis are used to being underdogs. Uh, in fact, they're not only used to it, they actually embrace it. Yeah. And if you tell an Israeli they can't do something, they're likely to want to work hard to prove you wrong. And I think that's a huge advantage, particularly when it comes to healthcare, because healthcare is filled with tough problems that, frankly, a lot of places, especially American companies, don't want to tackle the really tough problems. They want to figure out where the market is now and take advantage of it. So I think what Israeli companies have it as an advantage is looking for those opportunities that are unappealing to the big guys, to the giants, and are willing to sort of thread the needle to go in there and to prove that these challenges can be overcome. And I think that's exciting. I think that's a unique spot that many Israeli companies have. And um, it's clearly an advantage. Terrific. I would assume there is there is a flip side to this, uh, you know, seeing the problem and, and charging full, uh, full steam ahead. Uh, perhaps I would be curious to know what are the downsides? What are the things sometimes Israeli companies tend to miss? Well, I think, number one, Israeli companies often need to learn a little bit of patience. You know, this this same drive and sort of willingness and desire to fix a problem sometimes can bump heads with the American culture that often doesn't want to move quite as quickly. And so therefore, Israeli companies have to be prepared for sometimes it taking longer than they want. And that means that they have to have greater amount of resources than necessarily what you would have if you were entering a smaller market 
or one that moved quickly. And of course, there are always exceptions to this. There are exceptions where you know the first phone call you make is a partner that wants to move quickly and, and everything works well. But too often, I think the Israeli companies underestimate the inertia that I've talked about in the U.S. market. I also think that understanding the mindset of the healthcare executive in in the United States, what they're driven by, what their boards are looking for, what may get them fired from their jobs often is avoiding risk. And, you know, that isn't necessarily the mindset of some Israeli companies. So getting, you know, sort of that little tiny misread of a cultural difference can often be a big deal when entering a new market. And to that extent, I mean, do you see any differences? Let's say three, four years ago, we had COVID, lots of calls for action. Are there any changes in, in the mindset of entrepreneurs you're meeting about you know, the interaction with uh, the market and so on? Well, I think COVID is an interesting sort of accelerator of some companies and some innovation. But I think what we're finding is that even as strong as a pandemic is, human behavior and human nature tends to be stronger. And we're seeing a reversion back to pre-COVID practices in many ways. Now, again, there are examples that are that are the exception. I think behavioral health care and virtual care will tend to be strong uh, even coming out of this pandemic. But a lot of the other practices of returning to in-person care and going back to the old way of doing things, I think we're beginning to see that, unfortunately, where many of us thought that COVID would not only be an accelerator, but maybe a permanent change in the way that we do our work in healthcare. I think what may be stronger than even a pandemic is what we're seeing now on the economic impacts of what's happening with inflation, with uh, the workforce shortages, with the general decline in the economic environment. Those types of forces may end up being a stronger motivator of change, of doing business differently, because it's not your, these are really mandatory or essential to being able to remain in business. And, you know, when you can't find the right type of people to work in your organization or the costs of your supplies are going up so much more than your revenue, you can't continue to do business the same way. So I think we're about to enter into another period of time where we are likely to see people looking for new solutions and looking to do things more efficiently. Again, speaking about the governmental perspective, we hear a lot about the recovery fund, the COVID recovery fund coming to an end sometime soon. And on the other side, hospitals, health systems, not really returning to activity levels before COVID. To your point, what opportunities do you see in this situation? Will organizations be looking for things that might get them to be more efficient? Will they just try to reduce costs? 
uh, obviously labor is a big thing in between. Yeah, I think you're going to see a big variety of responses to this. I think overall, the healthcare system, particularly on the provider side, like hospitals and health systems, have been experiencing a tough environment. In fact, one that's tougher than most of the current leaders have ever seen. This first quarter in 2022 had the worst economic performance overall for hospitals in a long, long time. And you're going to see a different way of reacting to that depending upon the leadership style. There is no doubt that many organizations will just say, we're going to slow down and stop spending on anything that isn't absolutely core to our mission. And there are other organizations who are going to see this as the time to accelerate their investments in technology and to look at new ways of doing things, understanding that cutting back on spending is really a temporary solution. And so the longer-term solution, frankly, is to look towards things that are going to accelerate labor productivity. You know, technology in almost every other industry but healthcare resulted in dramatic improvements in labor use and reduction in the total cost of goods. But in healthcare, we've not seen that. Technology, if anything, has added people. It's You've had to grow your IT departments. You've had to add on clinicians to help interpret what the technology is saying. So I think that the future is going to be using technology to improve labor use and to lower the cost of care. And and perhaps as a final question on that perspective, do you think there are areas where entrepreneurs should shy away from given this current environment and what will be happening in the next uh, few years? I think that asking hospitals and health systems and health plans to make long-term investments is going to get more challenging. So I think that you want to have your eye on short-term wins and intermediate-term wins. And by wins, I mean both things that improve clinical care and the financial return of an organization. And one of the things I've learned throughout my career is that just having one is not enough. If you have something that's good for patient care clinically, but there's not an economic incentive to get that that solution implemented, it tends to be very slow or sometimes not happen. And on the other hand, if you just have something that's purely an economically viable product or service, but it doesn't do anything to help improve patient care or improve the mission of the organization, those two can be slow. So you want to look for the alignment of clinical and economic incentives. And, you know, I think that if you're doing things that are just improving the patient experience, but doesn't touch one of the other areas, it's going to be more challenging. I think if you're using, you know, you're helping organizations gather data or do better with data analytics, but it doesn't translate into a better diagnosis, a better treatment, a more efficient 
way of doing something, it's going to be challenging. If you're working in an area that requires large capital investment up front without a clear return on the other side, it's going to be more challenging in the future. I think we cannot overestimate how important these points were. I mean, looking at at the price, not working on surrogates, I guess. I mean, looking at, at the dollars and, and the clinical impact outcome and cost reduction or generating additional revenue, I guess, is, is important than ever. Yeah. You know, I don't want people to walk away saying this is depressing because, because I do believe that healthcare has no shortage of big issues and problems, and it's not going away. This is not, we're not in the luxury good business. We're in the necessity when, when people don't have their health, you know, nothing is more important. And so therefore, when you go back and you think about the advantages of the Israeli companies, the advantages are that they are looking to tackle those tough problems. And they're often in areas that no other companies have yet really found good solutions. And so therefore, there's going to be a strong need for what the Israeli companies bring to the world market in this new environment. But that doesn't mean that you won't have to change, adapt, evolve to be able to make sure that it's fitting in well. And that's where Israeli companies need to find the right people to work with in markets like the United States. Because when you combine what the Israeli companies can bring to the market with a real knowledge of how that market works. So, you know, finding the right partners in this case in the U.S., that's where I think you can really accelerate adoption and bring the solution to the market much quicker. Understood. I think that might be a very good final comment. So, Dr. David great. Shulkin, it's been a great pleasure having you with us. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nadav. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and gained some real value from it. And we would love to have your thoughts, feedback, and anything else. Links are available in the description. See you next time.